We come this morning to our fourth of the songs of Christmas. Um, as we entered into this Advent season, we looked at Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, one of the great songs of Isaiah the prophet. And then we looked at uh, Zechariah's Benedictus, his great nativity hymn when he had been told that his barren wife Elizabeth was going to conceive and was going to have the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And then we went back just before that to Mary's Magnificat, or to that great song in which she praises God for the Savior that she has knit together in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And today we come to the fourth of our songs of Christmas, and we're looking at that nativity song, the very short nativity song, and those events surrounding it in Luke chapter 2. If you have your copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to look together specifically at uh, what is titled in Latin, the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, Glory to God in the Highest, the angel song, that angelic, uh, exuberant song of praise that they sing before an unlikely audience, some poor, despised shepherds, um, away from the masses, away from royalty, away from the people in Israel. And yet, that heavenly, uh, angelic choir breaking out in praise to God. And we're looking together at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to read down to verse 20 this morning. Luke 2, 8. To 20. As always, any you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. And as Luke gives these very detailed accounts that he got, no doubt, from his interaction with Mary. Remember, Luke is a companion of Paul, and Luke was one of the disciples that was there uh, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, after his resurrection from the dead, he had given us an orderly account. That's, that's how Luke knew these things. Mary knew these things. The shepherds went at the end of this passage to Mary. Mary experienced these things. She treasured them in her hearts. And so Luke now, by the Spirit of God, tells us, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered 
at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there are certain things in theology that are more difficult than other things. The biblical and theological teaching on the angels is one of those difficult things. There's much that we don't know about angels. We don't know when the angels were created, per se. It must have happened sometime at the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, because in Job we're told that the sons of God, the angels, rejoiced at the newly created world. We know that by the sixth day, some of those angels had fallen, and one of them led our first parents in rebellion. We don't know much about what angels are like. We know that they're spirit beings and that they don't have bodies like you and me, but we know they must have some sort of spiritual corporality because they're not infinite spirits like God. They could be seen. They appeared to men. Men saw them. They recognized what they were. We know that they are uh, greater in power than we are. We know that they don't have genders like we do. We know that they don't marry like we do. And we know that they have something of a hierarchy, and they oftentimes go in Scripture under the term the host of the Lord. He is the Lord of the host of the armies of heaven. There are two errors that people commonly fall into when we think about angels. One of those is thinking of them like a precious moment toy at Cracker Barrel. I'm here to tell you, angels are not like a precious moment's angel at Cracker Barrel. The other error is to think more importantly of them and to think too much of them than we ought to think. That was a very common error during the apostolic age. In fact, the Apostle Paul will have to go to great lengths in Colossians to dispel the notions of angel worship. There are and have been many people that thought more highly of angels than they do of the Lord Jesus. They speak of angels and think about angels and want to talk about angels and fail to realize that angels serve a very narrow and a very specific purpose in redemptive history. It's very interesting. Angels do not appear all the time to everyone in human history or redemptive history. In fact, they are sent by God at very special and specific moments in redemptive history when God was entering in on his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, there are angels. When Israel is going into the land of conquest, there are angels in the days of the... And then there's no reference to angels through any of the period of the kingdom. No angel appears to David. No angel appears to a king. And the next time angels begin to appear again is when God is entering in on the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. In, in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you think of the angels that are sent to Daniel. And then there's silence. And for 400 years, no angels appear to anyone 
until the birth of our Lord Jesus, and then the whole host of angels are clustered together because this is the great moment in redemptive history. Now that ought to be significant to us this morning, because if we think of angels more significantly than we ought to, we'll miss that this is the moment for which they were waiting. This is the moment for which they were longing, though they didn't need redemption. And we see in this really marvelous passage of Scripture, we see the special role that the angelic hosts play surrounding the nativity of our Lord Jesus. And there are myriads of lessons for us about what's happening here in this passage. I want us to just consider three things uh, this morning. First, I want us to consider the angelic visitation. And then secondly, I want us to consider the angelic proclamation. And then finally, the angelic exaltation, the, the angelic visitation, proclamation, and exaltation. We'll notice that here we're told in verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This is very ordinary. These shepherds would have been out in those fields uh, in, in uh, most nights in Israel. And, and these shepherds were themselves despised. They were not uh, revered individuals. They were social outcasts. Everything we know from, um, from the, the history surrounding the, the first century Greco-Roman world is that they were actually more and more despised progressively. They were considered liars. They were not allowed to testify in court. They were just a degree above lepers. That's where shepherds were. And, and Luke introduces these shepherds and tells us that they're in this region and they're out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. They're not expecting anything to happen. They're not anticipating anything. They are going along in their ordinary business doing the ordinary calling God had called them to. And in a moment, they are visited by a single angel. Notice verse 9, Luke says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, there's one other thing I didn't tell you about shepherds. They were generally not afraid of many things. These are men that were not afraid of the dark. They're men that were not afraid of being out in the dark, but here they're afraid of the light. They're afraid of the light. They're afraid of the presence of a heavenly messenger they know that the living God has sent. And the question is, why are they afraid? Well, that's a common reaction when angels appear. Men fall down as if they're dead. Um, the, the best answer we can surmise is that they knew that they were sinners and that they knew that they were in some way in the presence of of God by means of the mediators that God had sent. Notice that Luke tells us it's not just that an angel appeared to them, but notice the glory of the Lord shone around them. They understood as the glory of God shone around them that they were sinful, and they were terrified. Their consciences would have convicted them, as ours would, if the glory of the Lord were to shine around us. Um, there's nothing safe about being in God's presence. 
Um, one theologian used to remark that every worship space in which the Church of God gathers Lord's Day by Lord's Day ought to have a sign in it, beware of God. Beware of God. Um, they, they, they didn't feel like it was safe for them to be in the presence of the glory of the Lord because they knew how sinful they were. And if you don't get that, there's something horribly wrong. They, they were laid bare by this angelic visitation of one angel and a display of God's glory around them. Now, the angel visiting them alleviates their fear. Notice this beautiful sentiment in verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, this is marvelous. God didn't send the angel to terrify the shepherds. In fact, God is sending this angel on, listen carefully, a mission of divine love. This is a manifestation of divine This is a reason this angel is appearing to these shepherds is because God, he's going to, he is going to explain to them in great detail the glory of the gospel. That's why the angel has come. That's why the angel is visiting. I want us to consider, though, that no sooner is this angel visiting with these shepherds that we're told in verse 13 that at some point as this angel is addressing the shepherds, a whole host of angels appear with him. If you could imagine, it's as if the, the heavens were torn apart and heaven broke through time and and what the shepherds would have seen is a multitude of angels too great to number now coming and appearing one angel. Why? Why is there a differentiation? Why does it begin with one angel and move to a whole company of angels? Well, you get the sense. You get the sense when you're reading this that as God had sent the one angel, perhaps Gabriel, the same angel that had gone to Mary and to Zechariah and to Joseph, perhaps it's the same angel. And now as Christ has come and everything that the angel tells us longed to look into. From the moment they were created, they longed to look into the things of redemption. It's as if the other angels have said to the Lord, please let us go too. Please let us go join with him at this moment. That is no small thing. These angels are longing to be there, to bear witness to what God is doing in the fullness of time in bringing the eternal Son, who is God, in the flesh, into the world. Um, Jonathan Edwards says, Great notice was taken of Christ's incarnation in heaven by the glorious inhabitants of the world. There were joyful songs at the creation, and yet here there are joyful songs by the shepherd, heard by the shepherds in the night. This was the greatest event of providence that the angels ever beheld. Now, here's where you have to listen carefully. This visit 
brings great joy to the angels. But this visit isn't for the angels because the angels didn't need redemption. These were unfallen angels. These are what scripture calls the elect angels. And in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says that he does not give help to angels. He didn't come to redeem fallen angels. They stand and fall on their own. But mankind fell in Adam, and he came to men, and he took to himself that by death he might destroy the one that had the power. Longing to bear witness to what he's going to do in his eternal blood. Now, that's amazing. Because when we think about the joy that the angels experience, what, a, what an indictment against the dullness of our hearts when we're the sinners that he came into the world to redeem. What an indictment to my dull heart that I don't have a heart longing to praise God constantly. Here are angels that do not benefit except that Christ is the head of the angels, and as he redeems a people for himself, he is reconciling heaven and earth, and he is in that sense the Lord of the angels. But these angels only benefit by seeing what he's doing for sinful men and women that do not deserve that redemption. Um... You know, this is amazing. If you took this narrative and you looked at all the other narratives of the nativity, you looked at the, the magi coming to Herod, who was functionally the king of Israel at that time, and saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod then calling the scribes and the chief priest, and they know exactly where he's going to be born, and they point to Micah 5.2, and they say, in Bethlehem, and, and Matthew tells us that Herod was terrified and wouldn't go. And the chief priest and the scribes who knew what the scripture says about where Christ would be born wouldn't go. And all of Jerusalem was terrified with him and they didn't go. And no one went. And there's no reception for Christ. And there's no glorious, there's no glorious celebration from the kings of the earth or the rich or the noble or the powerful or the influential or the celebrities. There's none of that for Christ. This is the Lord who gives life and breath to everyone. And there is nothing for him but these angels break out from heaven and come to some poor despised shepherds. Why? Listen, Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan, said, Here was Christ neglected of the world, lying in a manger, but God took better notice of him. Heaven took notice of him when earth did not regard him. That's what's happening. Why? Why this angelic host? Heaven took notice of him when earth did not regard him. You see, the lesson here for us, the angels are not saying, look at us. The angels are not encouraging us to talk about angels all the time. The angels are saying, look at what God has done. Look at how God has entered the flesh and has put himself in the manger and will put himself on the cross for the redemption of sinners. Listen to this. Richard Sibb said, God 
had another manner of respect and regard to Christ than the world had. He sends a multitude, a host of angels, to celebrate the birth of Jesus. That's amazing. Now, we go from the angelic visitation to the angelic proclamation. Notice that there is more in here. The, the angel, before that great company comes, and he brings that word of, of peace. Notice the first proclamation that he makes to these despised shepherds is, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, this is amazing. If you and I had devised some great celebratory event, we would probably tend to want to invite the people that we thought would be deserving of this. But the angels say, I bring you good news that is going to be great joy, that is going to be for all the people. Now, this is good. Because if you didn't grow up in a wealthy home, if you're not from nobility, if you have lived a difficult life, if you have been despised, if you have been socially rejected, the gospel is for you. As much as it is for those of noble or wealthy lineage, it is as much for the poor and the needy as for the great of the earth. And God is displaying that in the proclamation to these shepherds. What are these shepherds saying to us? They're saying if God would bring this great news of great joy to them, he's bringing it to me. And that means I can receive that and hold fast to that and know that the gospel is for me and that I will never be good enough or deserving enough for the gospel. I will never do enough to be deserving of the gospel. In fact, I have never done anything to make me deserving of the gospel. The gospel is for all people because all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. And that is good news that produces great joy for anyone who will believe the gospel. By the way, that might be the richest little short sermon ever preached. I bring you good news, a Savior, who's going to bring about great joy, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and it's for anyone who will believe. Whoever will trust in him will not be put to shame. Now, this angel says more. Notice there's a birth announcement in verse 11. By the way, there was never a birth announcement like this birth announcement, nor will there ever be a birth announcement like this birth announcement. I was thinking this week when, when a southerner has a baby, a, a son, and they give him four names. This is going to be Richard, David, Thomas. I'm just making this up, y'all. <laughs> Davis the third, but we're going to call him Jack. We've got to give him another name. And they send out that announcement to so-and-so was born. I can't even do the four names again, but those four names. And, and he was this much. He weighed this much. He's this long. Mother and baby are healthy. That's the birth announcement. This is a birth announcement. But notice that the angel doesn't say in verse 11, for unto Mary and Joseph is born a child. Notice what does the angel say? The angel says, for unto you is born. Isn't this marvelous? It's a birth announcement of what God has done for us. That's amazing. Heaven has sent an entire host of angels to say, 
A, a son has been born to you. Unto you, shepherds, despised, sinful, roughshod, outcast, is born this day in the city of David. I wonder when the shepherds heard in the city of David if they didn't start reflecting on that very famous shepherd, David, who probably would have tended sheep in the same area in which they were tending sheep. This is where David, so long before, as a boy, before God exalted him and made him the king over Israel, was a lowly 15-year-old shepherd tending sheep. And, and I wonder if they weren't thinking about the promises made to David that God was going to give him a son that was going to sit on the throne forever. And I wonder if they're not processing that it's happening right where they are, as God had said. Um, I was reminded this week, in a way I have not been reminded before, that when God brought the promise of redemption down, he moved it in very specific ways. It, it went from the seed of the woman, given to Adam and Eve in the garden, to the seed of Abraham, and then through to the tribe of Judah and the house of David, and then to the womb of the virgin, and then to the city of Bethlehem. It was as if God was funneling this promise down so there would be no mistake about what he was doing or why he was doing it. This is the king. This is the king of kings. And, and notice the angel says, For unto you was born this day in the city of David a savior, um, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of Christmas is not that we love a cute baby in a manger that's uh, much more refined and dignified than what it would have been like. The mystery of, of the incarnation and the Son coming into the world is that He would be a Savior, and a Savior is someone who saves sinners. And the angel says, born this day unto you a Savior, and then that idea of him being a savior is captured under two streams. He would be Christ, the son of David, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, and he would be the Lord. He would be fully man, and he would be fully God, and by being fully God and fully man in one person, he would become the savior. And in order for him to save you, God had to take flesh and blood to himself in one person to hang on the cross to atone for our sins. And that's what's happening at the moment that the angels are making this declaration. God has come into the world so that he might be a savior by taking flesh and blood to himself and being nailed to the tree for your sin and my sin. For unto you is born this day city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then in this proclamation, the angel gives the shepherds a sign. Notice this. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, this is not much of a sign. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. He doesn't say you will find the baby with a glowing halo around his head like medieval art portrays him. He says you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. You'll find a poor beggar child belonging to a poor teenage uh, beggar mother, and there won't be anything special about him, and he'll be laid in a feeding trough. And when you see it, you're going to know 
that this is the savior of the world, even though he looks just like every other beggar child. Nothing about him externally that would draw us to him. Nothing about this sign that would stand out as supernatural. It seems like the most natural thing in the world. Why? Because in order for Jesus to be the Savior, he had to become like us in every way, yet without sin. And so he left the glory of heaven and became the most ordinary of a poor infant wrapped in poor shabby clothes. And that's the only sign the shepherds are going to have. Why? Because they would have to believe in order to see his glory. They would have to believe what was told them to see the glory that was veiled by his flesh. I think my favorite line in any nativity hymn is that line by Isaac Watts, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, veiled in flesh. It's veiled, you can't see it. He, he looked just like everyone else. Isaiah says there was no form or beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about him from his infancy to his cursed death on the tree that ever would draw you with external senses. Veiled in flesh, in the manger, in swaddling clothes. I want to read to you really a profound meditation by John Calvin. Listen carefully. He says, When the Son of God was thrown in a manger and a lodging refused him among men, it was that heaven might be open to us, not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance. That's awesome. When he was thrown in the manger, lodging refused him. It was that heaven would be open to us as an eternal country and inheritance for us. Now, I want us to finally consider the angelic exaltation, and this is properly the Gloria in Excelsis Deo there in verse 14. Now, as that multitude of the heavenly host have joined in with this single angel, and they begin to praise God. Interesting, it doesn't say they sang. I, I have heard others say if, if we could hear an angel speaking, it probably would sound like they were singing. Now, we're told they're praising, and they're saying Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, what, what, what is this exultant praise? Here, everything looks like humiliation. Everything looks like abasement. Everything looks like poverty. poverty. Everything looks like what is despised and unwanted. And yet, the whole host of heaven begin to break out, and the first thing they praise God for is not for the salvation of men, but for God's glory. Notice this. The angels understand what we say we believe when we quote Westminster Shorter Catechism question one, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God. The angels understand that everything God is doing, God does for his glory. Everything he's doing is a display of his glory. 
God is displaying in Christ his wisdom, his justice, his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his grace, his love, and all of it is going to meet on the cross, and all of it comes together on the cross so that God is glorified. And the angels, in their exultant praise, have an eye first and foremost to the triune God, not to men. That's an important word for us. They are directing us up. Why are our praises often so cold and weak? Because we put our eyes on things around us. And we don't direct them up to him who fills heaven and earth. And who does all things for his glory. Um, it's as if the angels are reaching. I was thinking about that hymn, Teach Me Some Melodious Sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Who are the flaming tongues? The angels. They know how to praise God perfectly because they understand that, that God is exalted in all that he does and specifically in what he does in bringing Christ. Notice, glory to God in the highest. They understand there is no higher place. It's as if they're, they're, they're raising an antiphonal choir in which they're trying to get their voices to go to the highest level in which God will be glorified. They are not holding back. I know some of us, starting with me, have belligerent voices. I know that. But we are called to make a loud noise to the Lord and a joyful sound to our God. And we do that by recognizing that our praises ascend to him. Do you understand that the psalmist tells us that God is enthroned on the praises of his people? When we sing his praises, it forms, as it were, a throne for him to sit on. That's what the psalmist says. He is enthroned on the praises of his people. He's enthroned on the praises of the angel. angel. And there is nothing, nothing, more exalted than that. That's where the exaltation is. Now notice they also, they also exalt what he's doing on earth. Notice, and on earth, peace. And there are some very poor English translations here. I'll just tell you that. And it ought to be, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The King James Version mistakenly says, um, peace to men of goodwill, as if somehow good people get God's peace. Good people don't get God's peace. Sinners get God's peace. Good people don't need peace with God because they think they're at peace with God. Sinners need peace with God. And the angels saying, on earth, on earth, there is going to be peace and goodwill for men, for sinners. How is that peace going to come? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us the mystery in Colossians chapter 1, and he's meditating on what Jesus would do, and he says he has made peace through the blood of his cross. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. Um, if God is showing peace and goodwill to good people, then Jesus doesn't need to shed his blood to make that peace. But when the Son comes... And he takes all the sin of his people on himself, and he's nailed to the tree, and he sheds his blood unto death. God and sinners are reconciled. I've told you my favorite quote in church history. It comes out of John Bunyan's 
uh, autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and Bunyan was a man who really struggled to have a conscience that knew that he was at peace with God. He really felt the condemnation of his sin, the guilt of his sin. He really wondered whether he was reconciled to God. And, and on one occasion, Bunyan says he's out in a field, and he says, I was out one day walking through a field. I was musing on the wickedness and blasphemy that was in my heart to God. And that word came to me, he has made peace through the blood of his cross. And Bunyan says, he says, that day I was made to see that my sinful soul and the infinitely holy God could embrace and kiss each other through that blood. That was a good day to me. I should hope I will never forget it. That's an amazing statement. My sinful soul and the infinitely holy God can embrace and kiss one another through the blood of Jesus. That's the level of peace that Christ has brought into this world in the work of redemption. I want to point out to you that the shepherds, they see the visitation, they hear the proclamation, they witness the exaltation. And then notice what we're told in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Now, whatever else I say this morning, if you leave here and you don't have the same resolve as the shepherds to say, let me go and see what the Lord has done, and we go to Scripture, and we go to the pages of Scripture, and we see more than the shepherds did. But the shepherds are to be commended because they receive the, the message of the gospel, they believe the message of the gospel, and uncoerced, when the angels are gone, they decide, let's go, let's see what's been revealed to us from the Lord. They take God at his word, they go, they find the baby, and they worship him. Notice verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. That's the effect of Christmas on these shepherds. Now, the only way we experience um, returning, glorifying, and praising God is if we go and we see with the eyes of faith what we can only see with the eyes of faith as God has set his son in the scriptures. And when we go to see, we see that the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger is the same one that would be nailed to the tree and then wrapped in linen and placed in the tomb at the end of this gospel. And then we understand why it is that we needed to go and see and what it is we needed to go and see. And when we see it, and this happened for me when I was newly converted, and if you were converted, it happened for you at some point, when we finally see it, we are filled with joy and we want to praise and exalt in God for all that he has made known to us about Christ. And that's the effect of Christmas. And that's the message of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord.
That's the message to us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you, as it were, uh, rended the heavens and caused the whole host of angelic beings to do for these shepherds what they did in the coming of your Son into the world. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us to receive the same word and to do as the shepherds did, to believe the message of what has been made known to us, to go and to see in the scriptures the one who is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Our God, we pray that you would cause uh, that sweet grace of faith to be born in our hearts, even as you caused Christ to be born of the Virgin. And we pray that you would make us to see that it is by him you have made peace through the blood of his cross. We pray that you would give us exultant joy, that you would help us to glorify you and praise you and with the angels to say glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And so we pray that you would stir us up with these truths unto faith in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we...